Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friend. Hey, Carla. Michael. Welcome back to Florida, Carla. We have made it. It has <laughs> taken us weeks, but we have finally made it to this moment. Listen, it's been illness. You can hear that Carla's still a little bit under the yeah, weather. Yeah, I was going to say, you're definitely going to hear it this episode, so just bear it's, with us. It, well, but like also planes, trains, automobiles. You were up in D.C. for a work event. How was it? How it was so much. Go? It was so much fun. Honestly, it, it's so fun to be in the city, you know, walking around. But right, the pollution, the pollen, yeah. the traveling. There was a, a sick baby that, bless its heart, it, it Definitely probably gave you all the viral plague. Yeah, all, everyone traveled, on that plane, all 186 passengers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, traveled 100% better than I did. <laughs> cried less than I did. But was as snotty as can be. Yeah. So I was like, if we're waiting for me to be 100%, we may never put this podcast out again. That's right. So here we are. That's it was, right. It was good. So Thomas and I went out with some friends the night of that event to the Grand Marlin here in Pensacola. And we might have celebrated not having to go to that event. <laughs> so for for the 12 years that I worked there, I probably went to eight galas. And it just, by the end, I was like, no more. Plus, because of Thomas's position, we always had to sit with like his group of people. It's not the fun table. It's just not. <laughs> and we were always like way up at the front. It just was, it always felt stuffy instead of fun. And when I went, when I was younger and you know, was dating around or single or whatever. It was just a very different vibe. It felt know? like it probably felt like a work trip. It did. This year, I will say I enjoyed because I was there just to come and have fun. And that's right. Be someone's plus one. So I got to go to the gym and, you know, traveled around. I definitely ate my way through D.C. And we definitely like Uber Eats some McDonald's to the yeah. hotel at 2 a.m. I mean, the best. you have to. You have yeah. to. So I've got a really cool story for us today i cannot wait so this is not quite like i know we try to say intersection of pop culture and true crime this one would have been pop culture like in the 70s and 80s but i will say that it has some pop culture reference all the way up through 2016 so there are many people before i go into this that believe that this is the greatest unsolved mystery like ever it is still left officially unsolved by the FBI and all the other investigative agencies that helped out with this, including local jurisdictions, police, everything, and still is unsolved. As I tell the story, you're going to have mul multiple moments of just like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I, this is this one's so intriguing to me. How did you find this story? So I, I think I was looking for truly great mysteries and i like and you'll see this one doesn't do it we often go into like the doom and gloom like the bloody gory stuff this one is not that so i wanted something that was like a great mystery but no one died <laughs> and this is Love like it. one of them that popped up it's a bit of a mind fuck though it's like wait a minute how did someone do this even then when you know understandably it's not quite like how it is today when i get into this so oh love it love i'm it. going to be telling the story of Dan Cooper. The year is 1971. Richard Nixon is halfway through his first term of his presidency. The average cost of a gallon of milk is $1.50. A dozen eggs would set you back about 50 cents. 
And the everyday American could expect to pay somewhere south of $30,000 to buy a brand new home. (laughs) That is ridiculous. I'm so jealous. (laughs) So some other stuff going on during the time. Under the slogan, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, the legal voting age was lowered in the United States from 21 to 18 in the year 1971. Intel has just released the world's first ever microprocessor in the year 1971. Wow. Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, just opened the doors to its Magic Kingdom for the first time. Yep. In the true crime space, Charles Manson and three of his followers had just been sentenced to death back in 1971. Yep. And the New York Times begins publishing leaked sections of the infamous Pentagon Papers to the American public. So... Just to give you a sense of like what was going on in the American psyche at that time, like this was definitely a time of a lot of innovation. You see Intel flight has become uh, just prolific. Um, All sorts of things are, you know, starting to speed up technologically. It's definitely a world we still recognize. 100%. But November 24th, 1971 is specifically where we're starting. And it started out as an average and ordinary day in Portland, Oregon. It was cloudy and drizzly. It was the day before Thanksgiving, so the Portland airport is bustling with people, making their way to see friends and family for the Thanksgiving holiday. And wading into the mix of fellow travelers is a man named Dan Cooper. Dan is wearing a dark business suit with a white shirt and a thin, dark necktie. He also has on a dark overcoat and dark shoes. He's Caucasian with brown eyes and dark hair that is short and well-kept, combed over to one side with a nice, neat part. He's carrying a black briefcase and a brown paper bag as he approaches the ticket counter for Northwest Orient Airlines, which I cracked up. I'm like, that's not even a thing anymore. Like, yeah, I was I've like, never I've even never... heard of Northwest. No, I haven't either. <laughs> he walks up to the counter, and Dan buys a ticket for flight 305 in cash. He makes his way to his gate and settles into seat 18E, after boarding at approximately 2.50 p.m. for an on-time takeoff at 3 p.m. I just want to pause and say how different flying is today. (laughs) So first of all, this flight only has 36 passengers and six crew on it, and it's a nearly full flight. Also, the idea of getting to board only 10 minutes before takeoff is just the most ridiculous pipe dream I've ever heard of. No, they would have locked the doors. Oh, yeah. 10 minutes before. Yeah, 10 minutes before, you're not getting on anymore. No, you wouldn't have been allowed on. Just insane. Flight 305 is a short 30-minute domestic trip from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington on the West Coast. And it's on a Boeing 727 aircraft that, again, carried 36 passengers and six crew members. It's like a crop duster. I mean, itty bitty. Well, but also remember, seats were spaced a lot more generously. Yeah. So instead of the 3-3, you're generally talking a 2-2, and they're nice, big, comfortable seats like what you'd experience in today's first class. So it's like, this is probably still a relatively full flight. Like, it's at least halfway full. Yeah. Flight 305 is a short 30-minute domestic trip from Portland, Oregon, to Seattle, Washington, on a Boeing 727 aircraft. And as it moves down the runway and lifts off, everything seems normal. A smooth takeoff was hopefully going to set the tone for the rest of the flight. As the plane reaches its cruising altitude, the flight attendants and crew begin doing their thing. You're hearing their messages back and forth from the captain to the main cabin. 
the flight attendants are getting up and they're starting to do snack, drink, meal service, all of that, because you know you could actually get you know an in-flight snack on a short domestic flight back then, and probably know, light a cigarette. Which Carlo? <laughs> can we talk about the insanity of? Hey, we're going to put ourselves in a pressurized metal bus in the sky. You know, we're our lives are just hanging thousands of feet in the air. But you know what's a great idea? Let's light something on fire in here just for kicks Multi- and giggles. Great. Multiple. Multiple times. That's right. It's going to be great. Including the pilot. It's going to be great. All those things aside, though, as the plane reaches its cruising altitude, all of that action is going on in the main cabin. And the flight attendants began moving down the aisles. And one of the flight attendants, when they reach row 18 gets to Dan. Dan orders a bourbon and a 7-Up. A few more minutes into the flight, Dan is enjoying his drink, he's sipping on it, and he's just kind of looking around the cabin, and all of a sudden looks backwards over his shoulder and calmly hands a folded note to the flight attendant who is sitting in one of those jumper chairs that's back in the galley, and it's directly behind him because he's in the final row of the plane. The flight attendant is a woman named Florence Schaffner. She was a little taken aback by the gesture, but only for a moment. This wasn't the first time a passenger had done such a thing with her. She was a really attractive woman, and it wasn't unheard of for the occasional businessman to write her a note or to try to give her his number. Flattered, but not really thinking much of it, Florence places the unopened note in her purse and returns to tending to the rest of the passengers. Dan was hoping for a better, or at least a different, response from the flight attendant when he handed her the note. Surely this wasn't a completely typical interaction, even though, again, she was very attractive. He thought for sure the lovely young lady would have recognized the oddness of the gesture and read the note immediately, but having watched Florence place the note into her purse without it having been read, Dan had to take action. Nothing could have prepared Florence for the wild chain of events that was about to unfold. He leaned over to the flight attendant the next time that she walked by, and he said to her, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Florence froze. In fact, everything seemed to slow down to an unnatural speed around her. She could not comprehend what Dan was saying. But as she started processing his words, she realized that this man might just be deadly serious. He could, in fact, really have a bomb, or at the very least, some kind of weapon that could put all of the passengers and the crew on this flight at risk. So Florence gathers her thoughts and some resolve, and with shaking hands, she pulls the still-folded note out of her purse. As she opens it, she sees a message that's been written in all capital letters with a felt-tip pen, and it reads, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase, and you want to sit by me. Shocked and panicked, but also determined it is, after all, her job to keep her passengers safe, Florence does as Dan has instructed her to do in his note. She sits in the seat right next to him and takes a few deep breaths before leaning over to Dan to ask if she can see the bomb. Dan would open his briefcase to reveal what did, in fact, appear to be a bomb. What she saw consisted of four dynamite sticks or some other similar explosive, attached to a battery and what appeared to be a detonation mechanism. This was actually happening. Dan closed his briefcase and began telling Florence his demands. And Florence, scared into a very sudden and sober clear-headedness, began writing everything down. After Dan was done telling Florence what he wanted, she would get out of her seat 
She would take in the sight of all the passengers on the craft that had no idea what kind of danger they found themselves in, and she would make her way to the cockpit, and once there, would begin bringing the rest of the crew up to speed. I can't even imagine. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking about, like, here she just thought, like, oh, here's this passenger who's, like, he's hit on me, I'm cute, Let me. he gave me his number, whatever, and then he's like, no, ma'am, I have a bomb. Yeah, you need to react to this. That's what I like. That would be me. I'd be like, "Oh, this guy's just hitting on me," and he's like, "No, you're you're all gonna die. You're all going to die unless you do exactly what I say." Please and thank you. That's crazy. Captain William Scott would take in the news with the same sense of disbelief and focused determination that Florence had displayed. He would direct Florence to stay in the cockpit for the rest of the flight and keep a running transcript of what was said and done, every detail. Captain Scott would then calmly contact Northwest Orient's flight operations using the plane's communication systems, and he would relay Dan Cooper's demands for $200,000 in American currency, all $20 bills. Cooper stated that the cash was to be delivered in a knapsack by 5 p.m. Remember that this flight had just taken off at 3 p.m. And he requested two sets of parachutes, two back chutes, and two front. I mean, just craziness. <clears throat> it's also such a short flight that, like, you think, okay, a couple of couple minutes to get up in the air. You're really probably, like, the flight attendants are only moving around, like, 20 minutes of this flight. It's such a short time period to make To make sure that you can get demands. done what you want to have done. Right. All of this, the monetary ass, the parachutes, everything, had been told to Florence by Dan and Florence had in turn taken down notes and told Captain Scott Scott was now communicating all of these demands to air traffic control staff and crew in Seattle. And now, with Florence safely in the cockpit and demands given to all of the proper authorities both at Northwest Orient and in Seattle, a second flight attendant, Tina Mudlow, was sent to sit next to Dan for the rest of the flight and to convey messages back and forth between Dan and the flight crew. Because, of course, at this point, they're wanting to keep lines of communication open. If we have any chance of getting in front of this, of preventing whatever it is this guy intends to do from happening, we have to keep him talking. I wonder where he... So does he think that they're going to land and bring <clears throat> him the money? Is that what the plan maybe is? That is exactly what he intends to do. Wow. So once Tina was in place next to Dan Cooper, he started making further demands. He wanted fuel trucks to meet the plane on the tarmac in Seattle. He intended to have the plane refueled after landing, at which point the crew was to set a flight path to Mexico with specific instructions regarding the altitude and speed that were to be maintained during the second flight. Like, what the actual fuck? Like, you have to imagine as they're hearing this, they're like, what is happening? Like, what is this guy doing? Yeah. And especially so early in our commercial airspace like is becoming this big booming thing all of this was unknown like i imagine there is very little these days that air traffic control and all of those authorities tsa haven't seen or heard right but like this is 1971 like they haven't seen or heard any of that where like a person that isn't ticketed on a plane might still make it onto that plane like right, that would right. never happen today so it's just but still hearing this to them has to just be like what the what the actual fuck is happening right now once they landed safely in Seattle, Tina would be sent outside the plane to retrieve the $200,000 that Dan had requested. Tina was not to leave his side 
until she was sent to get the cash so she had to stay on the plane sitting next to him, and all passengers and crew were to stay seated on the plane at all times during the actual retrieval process of the cash and getting it back on board. So no one was getting it off. If he was going to let anyone off, it was certain that no one was going to get off until he had his cash in hand. But Dan did in fact promise that the passengers would be released once he had that money in hand. Afterward, the plane was to be refueled, and then the parachutes were to be loaded. They were to be the last items brought on board before the plane would take off for Mexico. Tina was confused, panicked, so many emotions, but she would give these demands to the flight crew as she had been instructed, and Captain Scott would do the same as he had done with the earlier demands. He would pass them off once again to air traffic control in Seattle and to Northwest Orient. Northwest Orient's president would authorize the payment of the $200,000 ransom and stated that everything possible would be done to make sure that all passenger and crew members made it off the plane alive and well. To buy the time needed to gather the resources and the personnel to get the funds and the other requested equipment to Dan Cooper, the passengers were told that the aircraft was experiencing some minor technical issues that would delay their arrival into Seattle. So they're basically just circling over the city. Flight 305 would do that circling above Seattle-Tacoma for approximately two hours, during which time air traffic control in Northwest Orient worked with Seattle Police and Seattle First National Bank to package the cash ransom. They also worked with a local skydiving school and a stuntman to get the two sets of front and back parachutes that Cooper had demanded. All the while, the other 35 passengers on board Flight 305 were never any the wiser that they were in any danger. So they just think that they're sitting on... They literally think the only reason, like, the only thing that's gone wrong is that they're having a mechanical issue and they can't land the plane on time. So they think they're just getting into Seattle delayed, but that everything else is so fine. So they're not, like, sitting on the tarmac. They're flying They're in the flying. Air. Yeah, they're I just gotcha. circling, circling up above. Captain Scott, during this period that the plane was circling above the airport, had negotiated with Cooper to land the plane on a partially lit runway that was out further, and Cooper agreed but also demanded that only one representative from the airline was to come with the money and the parachutes ready to exchange. So he didn't want some small army of people. He wanted one person from the airline to convey things back and forth. Yeah, I'm sure he did. I bet. He was trying to put some distance between them and the main terminals to just minimize any impacts. Right, just in all, case something did happen. That's right. All he knows is that this guy has an explosive right. on a plane, and thinks, we already have 35 passengers that are at risk. Right. Let's, let's not, not make an entire airport. Yeah, let's not do it 10 times that. So, Also, only the front door of the plane, the main passenger entrance that's usually up near the cockpit on a plane, was to be used during the loading and unloading process. So didn't want any emergency exits open, didn't want a chance to have multiple entrances and exits opened up. Keep it to one. Finally, two hours after the scheduled arrival time, Northwest Orient Flight 305 would touch down safely in Seattle, Washington. Golly, it's hard to imagine the conversations that you have to have with yourself to be like, this This could be it. And like, I'm trying to think, like, as, as if it's not stressful enough, Carla, to be driving the metal pressurized bus in the right. air. <laughs> you know, he's got... A few things on his mind already. To be having to take in this information and calmly be conveying it to all the right people while, like, knowing this guy has a bomb, so you're trying not to piss him off or do anything that would make him 
agitated or like do something irrational in that situation. I can only imagine as they're sending Tina back and forth, how carefully the captain is choosing his words. He's and like, they've had to think through here are the multiple scenarios, like even just the decision making. I am choosing as the captain to take this course of action right? rather than to try to subdue this man, rather to do however many other paths he could have taken forward to just be all like, we've got to let this play out. And I've got to just be willing to take whatever consequences come from making this decision of letting it play out. It's an incredible, like, he seems like an incredible leader. The ability to act under tremendous pressure and kind of make cool decisions. <laughs> I know. I'm like, mm. The complete opposite of what Carla would have done to that. I'd have landed it and called bullshit. I'd been like, blow us all up then. I you're blowing think, yourself up too. Yeah, I'd be like, and yeah, you're not blow getting us, your money. Yeah, blow us all up. I'd be like, I don't know. People could start jumping out the plane maybe faster than you. You know, bombs were not that sophisticated sometimes. <laughs> most of the time back then. If you think about like the mail bombs, like they, yeah, yeah. Some, oftentimes it's they didn't a simple kill trigger. Anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Captain Scott would radio the airport. Al Lee from Northwest Orient would be the assigned person to hand off the cash and parachutes to Tina Mudlow. Tina would reboard the plane with cash in hand with the whole crew unsure of how Dan was actually going to respond once the cash was handed over. After a tense moment when he appeared to be determining the legitimacy of the bills or maybe if the amount was correct, Dan would stay true to his word. He would release the passengers, leaving just himself and the plane's six crew members on board. Refueling, however, did not quite go as planned. A mechanical issue would eventually mean that additional fuel trucks had to be deployed to complete the refueling process, and it, of course, delayed everything. During the delay, an FAA official asked for a face-to-face meeting with Cooper, but he refused this before becoming impatient and requesting the process be sped up. I'm sure this request also came with a sharp reminder of the explosive device in his possession. Understanding that there were no more stall tactics to be had or to be used, the plane would eventually complete its fueling without further incident or delay. At the suggestion of Captain Scott, and this is again some good leadership on his part, Dan would release Florence and the third flight attendant, whose name was Alice, that he hadn't yet coordinated with on the flight. This meant that the only people left on the plane now that all the passengers had been released were, of course, Dan himself, the plane's pilot, right, the plane's co-pilot, the flight engineer, and the last remaining flight attendant, Tina Mudlow. Dan would give his final set of instructions to the remaining crew as they prepared to take off. Cooper asked the crew to set out course to Mexico City, running at the lowest speed possible on the aircraft without stalling and at a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. So basically, he's like, you need to go as slow as possible, but don't let this puppy stall. And you're not not allowed to go above 10,000 feet. He also demanded that the landing gear remain deployed for the duration of the flight and that the cabin remain depressurized. So... This is basically what you'd be experiencing if you were going up in a plane to skydive. Like, that's feels like what he's setting it up to be. <laughs> the flight crew negotiated the landing site with Cooper, letting him know that the plane couldn't make it to Mexico on the fuel load. Like, it, this is only a 727. It literally, they couldn't fit enough fuel into the plane to allow it. This is this plane is usually taking 30-minute domestic routes. Right. It can't make a six-hour flight. Like, it's not. it's just not going to do that. So they eventually agreed to land in Reno, Nevada. This final hiccup solved, Flight 305 would take off from Seattle-Tacoma Airport 
at approximately 7.40 p.m. on November 24th. After takeoff, Cooper told Mudlow to lower the aft staircase. She told him and the flight crew that she feared being sucked out of the aircraft, so the flight crew suggested that she come up to the cockpit and get some sort of safety line that would basically let her stay tethered to her seat. Cooper didn't like this idea, though, saying that he didn't want her going up front to the flight crew and then coming back to the cabin. He didn't know what kind of interaction could have happened there. She continued, of course, to be terrified at this. Like, all she knows is like, cool. I'm going to get sucked out of this plane. That's it. Like, you're asking me to do this. You're not doing it yourself. You're asking me to do it. And you're not even letting me go talk to the rest of my flight crew about, like, what some alternatives are to this. So if I were in her shoe, I would be flipping the fuck out. Yeah. Why would be like, well, then you go up there and get it. She did continue to express her fear to him. He said, which is exactly what we were saying, I will take the stairs down myself. So he instructed her to go to the cockpit. She was to close that curtain partition so that they couldn't see him anymore and not come back until after they were sure that the deed was done. So past this point, what happened on this flight? Tina says that the very last words that she said were begging him to take the bomb with him off the plane. Like, whatever you're doing, just take the bomb with you. But what we know for sure is that the aft staircase was lowered down sometime around 8 p.m. And that after that point, they had tried intercoming back and forth to Dan and didn't hear a lot going on. So we don't know exactly when he jumped out. But what we do know is that finally at 11.02 p.m., with the aft staircase still deployed, Flight 305 landed in Reno, Tahoe International Airport. Dan Cooper was nowhere to be found. The flight doesn't take that long to get there, by the way, so one assumes that they were doing some circling and stalling and slowing down, although I will remind everyone that they were going at a very, very low speed and at a low altitude as they were doing all of this. They never found him, though. Basically, the end of the story is... While there are some traces that were left of Dan Cooper, all they know is that somewhere between Seattle and Reno, this man managed to jump out of a commercial aircraft and was never heard from or seen again. So an investigation is, of course, opened by the FBI. How the hell did this man thwart all of these safety systems that had been put in place around flying? How the hell did he manage to basically hold all these officials in Seattle and Reno hostage at this idea of of having a bomb? And then how did he safely jump out of a plane and disappear without a trace over terrain that probably would have been pretty difficult to traverse? Well, again, you're thinking about too, I mean, it was 50 years ago. Yes. I I almost started to say 30 years ago, but no, truly 50 years ago. So the landscape was even more rugged than it is today because of you know all the buildup over especially in seattle i mean seattle's had a huge boom rena like all of that so it was even more desolate yes you know you didn't have all this urban sprawl like you still had these bigger cities but you didn't have like basically now you know there are suburbs outside all of these cities that stretch for additional miles none of that was developed none of that was there i wonder if he did really survive let me wrap up just a few loose ends first so Like this story ends with somewhere over the rugged terrain of the Pacific Northwest, Dan Cooper executed, I I think, a pretty stunning parachute jump into the darkness of night. He disappeared into that terrain, into the wilderness, 
and he was never definitively seen or heard from again. The FBI launches an extensive, a massive manhunt, but despite their efforts, Cooper's true identity and whereabouts remain shrouded in mystery even today. The FBI did not officially close this case until 2016. And wow. It, and it opened in 1971. Now, it had some closures and opens along the way and, you know, re-looking at it. Just a few of the things that really hit me about this particular case. He chose to execute his plan on a crowded day. He knew that the day before Thanksgiving would have that airport very, very busy, that yes. everyone's trying to get where they need to go. No one is going to be paying attention to a very generic looking man walking around in the airport in a very generic looking suit. Yeah. There's think, also a risk to it being very busy too. It could have, you, right? I mean, you, there could have been a marshal on the plane. What I would have thought is like these days, holidays now have such extra security right. measures. You just never know. But I, I don't know if back then if that would have been a thing. No, probably not. So something else, he clearly had aviation knowledge. I didn't right. go into this. Like I had talked about generalities of he wants the cabin to be depressurized, only 10,000 feet. He definitely but like, knew. He specifically, like he knew what he was talking about. So one of the instructions that he gave that I didn't go into was about the wing flaps. He requested they be kept at specifically 15 degrees, which would be a very unusual demand for someone that didn't know something about flying. So like not only did he know something about flying, he knew specifically something about this aircraft, the Boeing 727, how it worked, what speed, altitude, and everything that he wanted it to be at, which of course gives FBI some leads. It's not your average layperson, especially back in 1971, right. that would know all of those details about this craft. To that point, Cooper specifically chose this plane, a 727, on this specific flight path. We know now from looking at the investigation that we think that this was because the 727 was small enough that it could cruise effectively at lower altitudes that right. most other commercial aircraft would stall out if they tried to cruise at an altitude that low. There's still just too much resistance in the atmosphere for them. Since he planned to parachute at around 10,000 feet, this was, of course, important that he have something where he could do that. He was smart in asking for two sets of parachutes, like I mentioned to you earlier. It implied that he intended to take a hostage and, like, they think that he knew that and was using that to discourage the authorities from giving him any faulty materials. Like, basically, I might be taking someone with me. Right. I think one of the things that I found most shocking about this was the unclear motivations of this. Like, I still don't, having read this and researched it and written it for hours and hours and all of that, like, what the fuck were, were his motivations? While this was disruptive, it was only mildly disruptive. Remember that this only made about 35 people's flights two hours late. And, you know, then he prevented whatever accompanying flight that would have been next, you know, by taking the plane to Reno. But it wasn't like some huge disruptive thing. No one was hurt. The $200,000 seemed weird. So today that is worth about $1.5 million dollars. And while that's a lot of money, it's not a life-changing amount of money. No. Like that, you're not going to go and live the rest of your life in wealth and never have to worry about anything again. Like it's just a, it's well, a surprisingly it's low number. Old either. Like he I mean, they're thinking was a relatively younger. Yes. Guy at this like point, like thirty to forty. There is an infamous sketch. We'll put pictures of that on our okay. socials when we post this because it's the only insight that we have uh, about what Dan Cooper looked like. But from that description, they think that he was about – he was between my age and yours. Like yeah. he's he's mid-30s to, to young 40s. Well, he's not an old guy. He's well-kempt. I could and, jump 
from a blame I, these like days it, and age. It just really doesn't like make any sense. So one of the branches of investigation did find, because of course they recorded the serial numbers of all of the bills that they gave him so that they could attempt to track those. And when they were doing a dredging of one of the bodies of water, I can't remember if it was a river or a lake, but one of the bodies of water that they suspect he might have like jumped out over, they found about fifty-eight to six thousand dollars worth of these bills that they knew the serial number. So some of them likely had fallen out of whatever sack or something, either you know during the jump or during landing. But you know, finding some of them, but not all of it, and not finding any of it with any other like obvious signs of him having died, their assumption is that he was able to keep a hold of the rest of the money and did in fact survive his jump. Just a, a quick hit. I was just doing the math because I was like, hmm. you know, I, I always joke about my dad being a, a pretty infamous con man. I'm like, what was Carl doing at that moment in time? <laughs> oh, let's see the 70s. Though he would have been in his 50s. So probably not. I don't know. I didn't, wouldn't probably wouldn't fit, the, wouldn't fit the description here. Yeah. I'll show you the picture of the, did you see the sketches of uh-huh. him? So if you search Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper, like, he's just a pretty generic, like, average-looking American dude with dark hair. Yeah, definitely didn't look like my dad, so. It's it's very nondescript photo, but I think that was also to Dan Cooper's advantage to not be, you know, someone that stood I, out. You wouldn't want to be someone that stood out on I this day. I the, the uh, 60s and 70s were the time of, like, true, you know, identity and, and things like that, because, especially around like flying and stuff, because you just didn't have the rules yeah. that you have right now. Like anybody could come in and get a ticket. I mean, just crazy stuff. Also, when they were flying they didn't him. search you like they do now. Uh, clearly not, because they would have looked in the briefcase and saw, like, if if that had gone through one of those airport scanners, they easily would have seen, even if it wasn't an explosive, right. that it looked like an explosive. Listen, I get a bottle of lotion thrown away every single damn time. Do you think it was a real explosive? No. I have read so much speculation back and forth on this. What makes you feel that way? So, I mean, well, one thing is I just feel like it's I, – I don't know what type of security they had back then, if anything, right? But if they did have some type of a security, I feel like that's such a risk. And it's such an unnecessary risk because the threat of a bomb is as strong as a bomb, Yeah. right? Because w- what's your choice? You're going to kill 36 people? Now, me, he didn't have a gun. Like, it would have been, honestly – to me, he should have had a bomb and a gun because what would have stopped people from running off the plane? Like that was it. Like that's the only control he had was that because I was like, I mean, even a, a bomb's going to take a couple of seconds to, to get off. You only got 36 people. Yeah. You could create enough of a distraction. You could get the majority of those people off that plane. You still would lose some lives possibly if you're hedging the wrong bet. Yeah. But then he's got to be the person who blows himself up. And I don't think he's that person. It doesn't. There was nothing about his persona that made it feel like any kind of suicide bombing, right? right. He clearly was trying to accomplish something and get away with some money, which tells me he's not interested in dying. I, I mean, just absolutely crazy. So on that flight, though, from Seattle to Reno, the one that he originally wanted to take to Mexico, but they ended up having to stop at Reno, they even had military aircraft following the plane. 
Like they did so far enough behind the plane so that Dan couldn't see them. So, I mean, they're, you know, like right. m- maybe miles back. I don't know how far back you have to be, but they're a far ways back. But I'm like, not only did he manage to escape this plane with no one on his actual plane being able to s- see it, but also these people that were following the 727 didn't see where and when Dan Cooper jumped out of the plane. And I'm like, he had to deploy parachutes. How did they not? I, I just don't know. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. I don't know enough about um, like altitude and things like that. But yeah, I, it's I definitely don't think that he had a bomb. He definitely knew what he was doing. Like he was smart enough. He had to have been some type of either skydiver or knew enough about planes. And at that time, you know, like we said before, like the commercial, like it was in, it was kind of in its boom. It was still in its infancy. So there probably wasn't a ton of people who had that much knowledge. Just a weird, crazy, topsy-turvy case. It's crazy that to this day, we still don't have answers. The FBI officially suspended their case on July 8th of 2016, said at that time that the active investigation of Cooper was to be suspended. They said that they needed to focus some of their investigation resources and manpower on issues of more urgent priorities. I was just looking at Reddit to see like what type of like crazy conspiracy theories. What was one that came so across one, the to one you? that made me think was that there was never really a Dan Cooper on the plane. That it was one of the six people on the plane and they made it all up. Interesting. Yeah, like it was one of them, essentially that kind of like they set it all up together. Um I had read like, a couple about like basically there's a lot that has to go right for that to work a lot out. um so it's it's much more like that one that- doesn't seem what one that do, did seem viable to me that i read was that this might have been some sort of like dignitary or someone else that needed to go into hiding to disappear completely yeah um dan cooper very likely from what i read didn't exist it's such a right such a generic name it's not quite John Smith, but it's close. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that like if there was some type of conspiracy theory, it had to have been with the pilot. Like, right? Like maybe the pilot was in on somebody. I just don't I think six people are is way too many for a secret to be held this many years. And I was thinking, okay, so if the person somewhere between like thirty and nineteen seventy, they were born in the forties, let's give them the best, the fifties. So they're in their 70s right now, 70s or 80s. Yeah. So we're, I mean, we're getting, we're getting close to start ruling out like deathbed confessions too. I don't know. I don't know that I buy any of the conspiracy theories. I don't understand his motives, but it seems like he had some intentions. Like it almost seems like he was showing off, like almost just showing them I can do this. But it was like, to me. He was someone with his own motivations, and he either survived this jump or he didn't. Some evidence that suggests that he, of course, did and that they found some of the money. But the FBI, when they were going through this, listed a lot of reasons that they thought that he likely didn't survive. One of them was that even though he knew about the equipment, he probably didn't have the necessary skydiving knowledge to be like a certified skydiver. It's hundreds of jumps that you've had to do. How would you do that without raising some sort of flag? He didn't seem to have any of the equipment necessary, even if he did survive the actual jump, to survive in the wilderness as he was traversing it. Like, how the heck did he get from point A to point B with when he was there? 
like you and I kind of hinted at earlier in this, he didn't have an accomplice. Like unless he was working with a member of the crew and it was some sort of internal conspiracy, how did he pull this off by himself? So it's like if he did this by himself, the odds that he planned all of this, survived the jump, and survived his traversal across the wilderness not very high. Dan Cooper will likely forever stay a mystery. We don't have an active FBI case on it anymore. I, you know, some guy in 1971 was able... I wonder able... if the statute of limitations has to be up too, right? I, I don't know. For something like this too, I'm not sure because I, the the list of crimes is long that they can charge him with. It's been literally... 50 years? 50 years. 53 years. Like at this almost. point, I'd say like, listen, you know what? You've made it 53 years. We're going to let bygones be bygones. We talk about, because like you've been on my whole like journey with our with our birds and we had like a raccoon attack. And I think I've shared that with, with yeah. guys on the podcast. Like it's this whole thing. So now they're in this like predator proof thing. And we joke all the time that if something manages to get in this thing at night and gets our chickens, while it will be heartbreaking, like at that point, it's like, homeboy, you earned it. Right. Like, good, good job. Good Good job, fucking Houdini, and I hope you enjoyed dinner. And that's kind of how I feel <laughs> Survival about Dan Cooper is just like you just – yes, actually, yes. you Dan Cooper just proved like some Darwin-level shenanigans. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, that – I love these stories. These like catch me if you can type how? stories or whatever. They are some of my favorites. And I, I think there is a documentary about this case – because as you were talking about it, I was like, I think I remember hearing about it. And it's fascinating. I mean, just amazing that either by accident or by being the most brilliant spy out there, Dan Cooper managed to completely defraud a bank out of $200,000 and make the FBI look like idiots. Just crazy. It's like very much of like that time of espionage and men of mystery and stuff like that so it's a it is a great story and if if nothing else like i mean he's got an incredible bragging rights so at this point dan cooper let us know that's right let us know (laughs) well if you have a theory about this if you've heard of this story or if you haven't and you're getting ready to go on a reddit rabbit hole run which by the way it's a fun one go ahead let us know on our socials what you think of this story. So catch us on our socials at Nosy Bees. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-S. But until next time, bitches. Bye. bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy, bitches. bitches.